Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the Metaverse show, Charlie Shrem. Charlie Shrem, I think probably doesn't need an intro, to be honest, but perhaps we're going to talk more about what he's doing now, his perspective on Bitcoin, the Bitcoin opportunity, and really helping founders understand how to navigate the ecosystem. Is that ecosystem evolving, changing, and all this kind of stuff? But anyway, welcome on the show, Charlie. So you're general partner at Jude Ventures. You've obviously got your own podcast. You are a crypto OG, you're a Bitcoin OG. And you know I, I think you've done more than most to kind of advocate for Bitcoin. And of course, a, a significant role at the Bitcoin Foundation. You are now very, very kindly supporting our Bitcoin Accelerator. You're a mentor there, one of kind of our, our star high profile mentors. As I said, I think... When we were initially speaking to you about getting involved in the program, we published our thesis and you felt that we were aligned on vision, really, for Bitcoin opportunity. But again, you know, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin stack and the Bitcoin ecosystem aren't necessarily easy to navigate, right? It, it comes with its own baggage. There's still a degree of politics there. And so who better to kind of help founders navigate that? than you. And so that's why we got you on board as a mentor. But really, I guess this podcast is an opportunity to kind of get a sneak peek into some of the kind of the support that you'd be giving founders and advice you'd be giving founders on navigating the space. But maybe for those people that have been living under a rock, it'd be great to kind of get a a very high level on you, Charlie, your background, you know, specific to Bitcoin and, and crypto and what led you to kind of more recently set up Druid Ventures, and I guess it's thesis as well, it's investment thesis. Yeah, of course. It's actually interesting. Today is the, it's like the 12-year anniversary of my first Bitcoin startup at Instant. We got funded. So December 13th, 2011, there was like an article that came out. It was like Brooklyn-based Bitcoin startup gets seed funding. And we got, we raised money from Roger Veer, who is just kind of this other like person in the Bitcoin world at the time that existed that I could talk to on the phone because the Bitcoin world in, in late 2010, early 2011 was relegated to like, none of us actually used our own real names until sometime in 2012. But I was known as Yankee. And Roger's name was Memory Dealers because that was his business name. And we all, you know, the old forum software, if you guys remember V Bulletin and Simple Machine Forums and all those old forums, that's where the Bitcoin community kind of launched. Every Bitcoin startup, including Coinbase and almost all the early Bitcoin companies, actually had to. You talk about politics and stuff like that. There's always been this degree of like, you need the Bitcoin community's blessing, if you will. And back then, in order, you couldn't launch a Bitcoin startup if you didn't announce your company first in the Bitcoin forums. And then you have to let everyone like basically rip you and you have to respond in public. And then the Bitcoin community of the early days was this very public place where it was like the bad actors would exist for a while, but eventually would get pulled down by the larger community, almost like the Roman mob, if you will. You know, it was good times back then. So I started Bit Instant in, in 2011 and we enabled people to buy and sell Bitcoin at like over a million locations in, in the US, the UK, Brazil and, and some other places in Europe through like local intermediaries that I made deals with like MoneyGram and Western Union, convenience stores like 7-Eleven and Walmarts and stuff like that. You can go in and anyone who bought Bitcoin in those years, you know, famously remembers you'd have to use like a red phone because there was this red phone in those convenience stores. You pick up the phone 
and you'd connect to my software and then you'd be able to buy Bitcoin at these like physical locations. Like 30 or 40% of the total Bitcoin blockchain volume at the time. But more importantly, because we were the first touching point of people for Bitcoin and we were safe, you know, you bought your Bitcoin, you got it. And we were just like a friendly New York based company. People would fly in all over the world to come to our offices. I probably met Satoshi in one of those early days because every day in our office, we published our address. You could walk in. We were, in a, we were right there in Madison Square Park in New York City. People can walk into our office. The inventor of the first ASIC miner, which is how everyone mines on for Bitcoin today, it's 99% of all Bitcoin mining, invented it in my office in New York City, the BitInstant office. Bitcoin Foundation was founded in that office. The first Bitcoin poker tournaments we did there. It was more of like a touching point as a community. The journalists would come. And I remember we had like Bitcoin meetups. And I remember having a CNN journalist was like the first journalist to ever write about Bitcoin in 2011. And we were like a keg and we were drinking beer. And the whole Bitcoin industry was like, it was like 50 people in the office. It was like the first Bitcoin conferences. And he just was like so at awe. And he, I remember he's like, Charlie, like, you don't know this because I'm older than you, but this is the future. Like, you're going to remember this party. You're going to remember this 10 years from now. And you're going to say, wow, that was historical. And he's like, I'm retiring. He's like, I know this is the future. And I remember him telling me that he's going to, he loves Bitcoin. This is what happened to a lot of journalists. They fell in love with Bitcoin so much. They left journalism that came over to the Bitcoin, Nathaniel Popper, Paul Vigna, Michael Casey. I mean, these people are running big parts of the Bitcoin industry that were running, they've written books too, that were running, like that were working for Wall Street Journal, New York Times before, Adrian Jeffries, Brian Eha, all of those people wrote Bitcoin books. Who else? Laura Shin, one of the most famous Bitcoiners today. She's also started as a journalist. So they would start, they're doing the investigations into Bitcoin in the early days. They're like, shit, this is the future. And so- you know, fast forward now, and we're going to get into what's changed. You've done a million podcasts. You've got your own podcast. So we don't need to go into too much kind of historical stuff. Really interested to get your perspective on what's happening now. Of course, understanding that in the context of the past. But maybe before we do that, let's fast forward to Druid Ventures. So, you know, you've been a founder, you've been an investor, you've been involved in the kind of, I guess, you know, the, the governance side, policy side, you, you kind of covered all things. And now you've got Druid Ventures. Tell us a little bit more about Druid, its thesis. So over the years, I had started a couple of different Bitcoin businesses and, and, and different things and helped, you know, a lot of companies out from like a very, like a very hands-on approach. And I always felt myself like getting spread too thin and not being able to make enough bets and not be able to do enough things and support as many companies as I want. And I met my uh, co-founders, actually the best time to start a crypto company is during the bear market. And I met my co-founders like right at the start of the of our fund, right at the start of the bear market of this one that we just hopefully ended now. And um, we said like, let's start a professionally managed fund. First time in my life that I've ever, you know, like said those words. Now, like, let's do it in, in a professional way, in a way that private equity and the way that you manage, you know, your VC funds and everything. I'd never done that before. And I said, guys, like, we made 15 investments during the bear market. I think maybe even more. And I remember saying, like, I want to be able to do that, but also support those businesses. So those guys taught me how to, like, set up a professionally managed fund, how to, like, support all of our entrepreneurs. And it's so much fun. It's stressful, you know, because sometimes you feel like you're just dealing with problems and you're just like, okay, you're dealing with what do I need to solve there? How do I need to help them? Let's talk through this for a couple of days. 
you help them go along and then you got to work on the next one. But that only lasts for a limited amount of time. Then you're dealing with the good stuff. You know, you're on your weekly meetings and you're talking to your entrepreneurs and their success and there's their offers and there's more fundraising and, and customers. So kind of like, you know, cycles back and forth. But it's definitely like it's on overdrive. So the highs are high, but the lows are low. And I and that was stress is like going through that because usually I can kind of, you know, keep things contained. And this was the first time that we really went big, you know, in our investing and we have some that are really tough, but I'm going to say like every single one of our entrepreneurs, I really have so much faith in and I would reinvest in. Yeah. And I think, look, you know, you've always historically been very generous with your time. And, I, and as you say, sometimes as an individual, that means you get spread too thin. So I think it's great. You've got that structure around you now where your time can be kind of strategically placed. And I know founders love working with you as well. So we're, we're really happy to have you on board as a mentor as well for our program. So you know, obviously, last two years have been especially interesting. I mean, in the scheme of everything, you know, maybe no more interesting than any other you know, period of cycles we, we've been through, maybe no more crazy than any other part of the cycle that we've been through. But before we get into Bitcoin specifically, just generally, as somebody that's been in crypto, I think you said 12 years now, right? How do you feel generally about the industry? You know, do you, do you think we can call it an industry now? And... How do you feel about the stage that it's at, its maturity? I think in, in Europe, you can call Bitcoin and crypto an industry. You have very favorable regulations between MICA and the Eurozone. And even in the UK, the relationship between the regulatory bodies there, there's almost like a passporting. So if you have a license in one country, you can operate, have customers in tons of others. Also, I didn't realize this, but most of the world's court systems are based on English common law. And so you have from Dubai to India and even Europe to a large extent. It's very different than the U.S. So I don't know which it doesn't matter which one's better or worse. But when you understand one and you can build a business landscape and a framework around one, it's very easy to passport to all these other ones. So Europe, you guys have a great industry. You go over there, you see advertisements in Swiss airports on British you know, buses and all over. It's blossoming. I feel like when I go over to Europe, you know, I really feel like we're a matured industry. In the US, it's like almost like Bitcoin and crypto are still dirty. It's a political weapon right now still. We have no regulations. We have like different regulatory bodies jockeying over control. And it's just not favorable to our industry. On the flip side of that, it makes for a lot of a better investing landscape. You know, when you have things are clear and you have a mature industry, there aren't as many good deals to be had, you know. So right now in the U.S., you still have like it's still the early days. We're still the early days of Bitcoin and crypto in the U.S. because we've not had that like smoothed over regulatory landscape yet. So there's like kind of a difference in that, I think. You still have like Coinbase publicly traded. They have their money transmitter licenses. So people are like, Charlie, what are you talking about? But even Coinbase, how many times are they battling the U.S. government? And they're the ones actually, you know, fighting the SEC and getting legislation in the courts. So that's not a favorable business landscape. So there's a lot of institutional capital that still won't enter. You know what institutional capital is doing in the U.S.? They're buying GBTC or they're buying Coinbase stock. That's like the extent of it. So we haven't even seen what a Bitcoin price could be if we saw like a favorable. And so right now, 
you're seeing like a lot of ETF talk and stuff like that. And so there's a lot of businesses that can be built in Bitcoin and crypto right now. There's a lot of, th- I'm talking to ChatGPT every single day, like coming up with new ideas of, of what I want to build if I had all the time in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because, I mean, it's ironic, right? You know, people like yourselves were in New York 12 years ago talking about this stuff and the potential and pioneering it. And yet the US to a degree is a laggard now in the context of the global environment. And you're right to highlight there are benefits to the kind of legal stack that's kind of fallen out of the British Commonwealth or what's kind of left of it now, where you have these nation, you have these city states around the world that are significant, but you know, not necessarily competitive with a nation state, but they have some commonality between how they function in their legal stack and I'm actually really hopeful that they start joining up more. So, you know, when Dubai and Cayman and Singapore start to say, you know what, actually having kind of passporting between our jurisdictions in the way that you have in in Europe could happen. You see it in other industries. Yeah, like the medical world does that. You can get a degree and, you know, medical degree in the Cayman Islands or in the UK and still be able to practice in the US. So there's definitely that exists. That would be really cool to see. I never even thought about that, to be honest. That would be next level. Yeah. I mean, we're close to Cayman. We're close to Dubai to a kind of lesser degree and Singapore as well and Temasek. And so, you know, there's, it kind of feels like that's, there's a natural direction of travel there. And they have to compete, right? They're competing between themselves all the time, but ultimately they're competing with nation states in kind of a high net worth sense. So we'll see where that goes. So obviously, and we're now, what, 13th of December, Senator Warren has tried to pass this new bill. Do you think that's like the death row of, of kind of like the final hurrah of the Dems trying to, you know, sabotage crypto? Crypto is like a football that's just being passed around. It's a, it's a tool. It's like not a tool. It's a bad word. It's like a weapon's not a good word, too. It's a political hot subject that gets you a lot of airtime on TV, radio, and social media. So the Elizabeth Warrens, the Matt Gateses, you know, he's Republican, so I'll call it Republicans too. You know, on both sides of the aisle, they're using our beautiful technology our jobs and our livelihoods. I'm going to say this because hopefully they're listening. You're using our jobs and our livelihoods for your own political gain. And that's not right right now because, you know, we put food on our family's table with our jobs here in our industry. I'd love for us to be more like Europe where Bitcoin and crypto is not even talked about in the political landscape anymore. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I had a, a guest on, a good friend of ours, who's Juana, who's deeply involved. She used to be at Citibank now fully immersed in Web3, but she used to be involved in Brussels with European Parliament, European Commission, around fintech, financial services. And actually, she talked about you know the obstacle to Libra happening was institutional banks lobbying governments. So it wasn't that the politicians had a natural aversion to crypto. It was you know these mega financial institutions behind them that were. That's what's happening with this too. You know you have, and it's not to stop it. They've just wanted to slow it down. Now you go to PayPal. You go to the large financial institutions. They're adopting their own stable coins eventually. They just want to control it. It's like if it's a train that's going too fast, they don't want to stop it, but they want to like control the speed of it, like own it. Let us be on the train, but they want to front run. So the legacy industry is going to try to front run. Same thing with AI, right? They're going to try to front run, you know, because they don't want the kids from Brooklyn like me running, you know, running, you know, the future of finance. 
Yeah, right. And it's interesting. So Rao Pal, another good friend of ours, last week was saying the little guy, the little person's opportunity to front run these large institutions. And I, and I think, I love him, but I think that's slightly naive, that we're not going to be allowed to front run these institutions is the reality. And I, I think that's probably where we're at. But maybe that's a good segue into Bitcoin, primarily why we got you on the show. I know you're not just limited to Bitcoin. You're not just like a Bitcoin maxi. You've been involved pretty much you know, since day one, through its various iterations, you know, heavily involved in the leadership of the Bitcoin Foundation. How would you describe the Bitcoin ecosystem today? What's different? Is its kind of constituency changing? You know, are there kind of different drivers now that are dictating what Bitcoin might become? Great question. If I had to like differentiate the Bitcoin community of five years ago with the Bitcoin community of today, I would say the largest differentiator is that almost every Bitcoiner I know also holds a bit of crypto. And that is a fundamental change because it's almost like one of the reasons that we finally have more like inclusive rights is that everyone knows someone now who was marginalized at some point because of like, sexual orientation or the color of your skin or something, a religion or something. So before those type of people are relegated to their communities or their, you know, closets, if you will, and stuff like that. And over time that changed. And that's why we have a more inclusive world today. It's beautiful. That's the same thing would happen with Bitcoin from a maximalist perspective. And that's exactly why you're seeing so much investment in Bitcoin now in the relationship between Bitcoin and crypto. Now, it's really hard. You talked about the Bitcoin tech stack. I don't see the Bitcoin tech stack changing, and I don't think people should try to like go that route. Bitcoin's inability to change, for me, is one of its best features. I love that very small, minute, short-term, potential positive, short-term things get bogged down in months and months and years of com- technical conversation and discussion. I love that about Bitcoin. I think it's one of the best things ever. Are there features that could have been added to Bitcoin faster? Of course. Are there features that won't be added to Bitcoin fast enough? Hell yeah. But that's just the way it is. And so there's still a lot that you can build off Bitcoin. Just right now, I'm like halfway into a white paper and I may never launch this, but I find myself doing this is like I have like half written white papers. I'm trying to like figure out a way to do like fidelity bonds on Bitcoin with the current tech stack of the way it is. And you can do it because Bitcoin has time lock verify. So you have like surety bonds and fidelity bonds that exist in the real world. It's a regulated industry and there's mathematical formulas for how you value a bond. And it's based on how much money you lock up for how long of an extended time. So they exist in the real world. You go and you give a million dollars to a surety bond company and they'll give you like a certificate that shows that you've deposited a million dollars there. And the value of the bond is the mixture of like an interest rate and how long you are locking that money up. And so if anyone, if you screw someone over or if you do a bad business deal or if you want to borrow money, you can use this certificate. And it actually increases your social standing in the business world to get a money transmitter license, to get a certain type of license in financial world or you know, to cut hair in some places you need to put a bond up. You can do that on the Bitcoin blockchain with the Bitcoin that you own offline and you don't need to give up the private keys. So if you're already holding Bitcoin, why not? create a bond out of it and use it. So I want to build that on Bitcoin. And if no one, if someone else builds it, like that's cool. We can, we can compete. It's not a bad idea. 
Yeah, look, I think maybe we'll get to this in a little bit, but the idea that you have this asset, one of the most valuable assets on the planet now, you know, I forget if it surpassed the value of Meta the other day. I always see these Yeah, charts, it was like right? close to it. It was close right. to it. I think it was Meta. Anyway, it's like, you know, relative kind of a peer, whether that's a corporation or a national currency, it's an incredibly valuable asset that is largely untapped. You know, people are literally just holding it and ways in which you can continue to hold it, but also put its value to work in some way is low hanging fruit. You know, some of the DeFi primitives that we've seen on Ethereum could easily be transferred over into the context of Bitcoin. But I think you made a really interesting point about the rate of innovation or the approach of innovation with Bitcoin, because there's something analogous to like, if you are an incumbent, you're like a market leader, you know, you're Nike or whatever, you've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, you do need to innovate, but you don't need to innovate at the rate of a brand new startup, right? Because a brand new startup needs to innovate to survive. And to do that, it needs to take lots of risks because inherent to innovation, especially big breakthroughs, is big risk. But if you're an incumbent, you don't need to do that, right? You've got revenues. You've got the luxury of time. You can see what these little startups do. And if it works, use your scale. And I guess Bitcoin's in that situation, right? It has the benefit of not having to take those risks. It can look at, it can look at what happens on Ethereum, other chains, and then at the appropriate point, replicate it. What you just said doesn't need to be a negative on other blockchains. You can tell that to someone and a lot of other people will get triggered by what you just said. And again, I hold crypto too. I can name you tons of other blockchains and projects that I've invested in, hold, support, love. But it's cool to still differentiate the two like you just did. And so that you'll still see that on crypto Twitter. Sometimes you'll meet people. I did a, a Zoom with like a Bitcoin only VC such a nice guy. But before he, we knew each other, like the first 10 minutes, he felt like he needed to defend his position of like why he only invests in Bitcoin. I'm like, you just wasted 10 minutes. I get it. I know you. You don't need to explain to me why only investing in Bitcoin is a good idea. But he's probably dealing with having to defend his position and like, oh, I'm a maximalist. But you're, that whole term is so stupid. Yeah. So I feel like that was created by almost Main Street, you know, Main Street. So it's good to see like a this coming back. And, and I, we predicted it like a year or two ago. We said that like we'll see a huge unification of like Bitcoin and crypto back together. Yeah. And I think, as you know, we are agnostic, right? We just want to see the principles, which we define as Web3, realized in the web, in the financial system that we live in. And like, however we get there, you know, we don't care. And maybe we have more of a stake in one than the other. But in the end, like we, we all win. If it's kind of fundamental principles and tenants can be realized and there, there are different pathways to get there. So we'd never done a Bitcoin accelerator program before. You know, we've been around since ours a decade years old, right? And we've only just done our first program. We think now's the right time to, to run that program, you know, you talked about the stack earlier and the degree to which you think it kind of should evolve. And I really want to get into that, but it kind of felt like the momentum now, and you see this in these cycles, right? When the bear market comes, everything goes out of alts and it moves back into Bitcoin, maybe Bitcoin and ETH to a degree, maybe even Ripple and XRP now is kind of part of that cycle. You know, with attention comes capital, comes innovation. 
But this time it feels different. It feels like Bitcoin is ready to like begin to properly capitalize on that in a developer sense, right? You know, people who can begin to apply that to kind of commercial use cases and build successful startups out of it beyond the basics of exchanges and, and kind of stuff like that. Yeah, because we're going to do a podcast in a year or two from now, and we'll remember this conversation, but this is what's going to happen. All the ETFs are going to get approved in the US. The world is going to have more. You'll see a huge relationship between trillions of dollars of institutional capital and these legacy money managers, like you said. The legacy money managers who've been trying to front run that train realize the real money is in custody. That's the real money in management. They can make so much money just by holding this, in their view, this imaginary asset for people and charging real dollars for it. So what we have to do is compete with them. And we have to convince people to hold their own Bitcoin and to do stuff with it. And one of those things you can do is continue to support the industry. So like we need to keep that circular economy going because if they suck all the Bitcoin out of it, then we just become like a tradable statistic, like what's left. So Jasper Demar, who wrote our paper, our kind of thesis really for Bitcoin and Bitcoin Renaissance, he kind of had this like trifecta. His argumentation was that even when institutions begin to take hold of these assets and create, you know, these kind of financial products on top, they perhaps more than anybody will look to maximize yield on that. They're not just going to hold it and keep it passively. Like they're mandated as businesses to maximize their own return on that. And so if anything, they're going to be a driver for innovation in a financial sense on top of driving yield in kind of a DeFi context or I don't know, some kind of hybrid. Yeah. I want to figure out a way to be able to use Bitcoin, but keep private keys offline. And this is another business because like the custody laws around that will prevent the custodians of those institutional Bitcoin from doing like a lot of things with it. But if they can do things without needing to move the Bitcoin. And I'll give you an example. Back in the early days of Bitcoin, when we were moving large amounts, like tens and tens and hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin worth, the way we would do it was that you take the private key and you can actually create the transaction on an offline computer. As long as you have the private keys on an offline computer, you can sign a transaction. You can then take the signature and put it into a text file and then transfer that signature anywhere to like another computer. And then you can take that text file, paste it into any node and then broadcast the transaction. So what you've done is you've moved Bitcoin without needing to move the private keys onto a computer that touches the internet. So the private keys are offline all the time. So you can make a business out of that to figure out there's something there too. There's so many ideas people haven't done. Yeah, and I'm sure you begin to leverage zero knowledge type technologies Perfect as well. example, yeah. Yeah, roll-ups, you can do roll. So I just spoke to a phenomenal Zoom with a CTO yesterday about that, how MintLayer is building a side chain on top of Bitcoin and then we'll use roll-up technology to just call on the Bitcoin like main chain and allow you to do like instant transactions on the mint layer. It's really cool stuff. Like there's a lot there. So let's talk about the stack because you mentioned earlier, maybe there shouldn't be so much focus on the stack or evolving the stack. So as you know, we're expecting in this program, like most programs, to be honest with you, people are building all across the stack. Some people are building primitives, people are building middleware to make it more usable for developers. Some people are applying it at the application layer, given where we are now, where the stack is now, where the industry is now, 
where would you like to see innovation happening? Where don't you think people should be expending time? Yeah, what I'd love to see more is more Bitcoin development on the main chain itself. But we get back to the problem of like, it just takes time. And the fact that it takes time is a good thing. I would love to see more Bitcoin core developers. I mean, it's a thankless job. You can't get paid for it unless you, you know, you can get a grant. But I'll tell you one thing. If you're even a very low level script kitty developer and you're just learning how to code, low level, like you're nothing, you're just starting out. One of the best ways to differentiate yourself is go work on a public blockchain for free for a while. Go work on some big, there's a lot of stuff that Bitcoin needs, like little trims, like how a butcher takes meat and trims the fad. Bitcoin constantly needs even updating whenever they do make a fix, because Bitcoin does update. The software updates every couple of months, but it's vulnerabilities, patches, fixes, core things, stuff like that. Maintenance, RPC updates, API updates, you know, growing the stack. Major changes you won't see, changes of consensus, like changing the upper limit from 21 million to something else. That you won't see. But the Bitcoin core development is very active. And if you want to go out there and do it for free for a while, anyone will hire you. Like any other company in the space or even out of the space, you can walk in and say, hey, I was a Bitcoin core developer for a year for free. You have a job. You have a senior level job guaranteed. So that's like, hey, that's free advice right there to any of your listeners to like jump ahead of anyone else, especially if you're just starting out. But you asked like what I'd like to see if I had a wish list. I would love to see better decentralized applications for interacting with Bitcoin and other blockchains. That's my wish list. So kind of a cross-chain approach. And we've got a specific cross-chain program with Wormhole, but you know, cross-chain is, is obviously a kind of a big narrative now, which is great to see, right? Because it's unifying. And the reality is, is that any protocol that isn't Bitcoin or isn't Ethereum ultimately needs to bridge into it. That's the opportunity. That's where the liquidity is. That's where the value is. And so there's, it's almost a prerequisite. But but it's interesting from the kind of Bitcoin side that you're kind of looking for for that kind of that interoperability. And so maybe just at a cultural level, I think whenever I've spoken to some developers, founders over the years, some of them have been a little just put off by Bitcoin, like the culture of Bitcoin for different reasons, I think. Do you think that's changing now? Do you feel, I mean, you've always been a very accessible person, right? A very pragmatic person, very accessible, very friendly. Sometimes in these cycles, personalities drive, they become almost a representative of Bitcoin, wrongly or rightly. Do you think that's changing now? Do you think it's becoming more accessible, more inclusive? Yeah, it's definitely, you're seeing a lot more counterweight. So like when the next cycles come, and you see that happen. I think even right now, you see a lot more like level-headed people who have a lot of followings who can call this kind of stuff out in a cheeky way. And that's the thing that'll never change. Bitcoin is very cheeky. There's a lot of sarcastic humor. There's a lot of passive aggressiveness. There's a lot of trolling. There's a lot of using words because Bitcoiners, and I take full responsibility for this, when we created the ethos of our industry and our community, we were all misfits from the rest of the world. We were like the bruised fruit that never makes it to the grocery store. We were just the people that were in our parents' basements, really smart maybe, but very misunderstood. You know, the CEOs of some of the top Bitcoin companies today, 
you know, used to sell cell phone accessories at the mall over almost 10 years ago. So we were misfits. And so when we went on the Bitcoin forums and the IRC channels and all these places, the way to prove yourself was through your spoken word and your actions and not what you look like or, you know, how suave you are and things like that, or how wealthy you were and things like that. So maybe a lot of that like still exists today where like the spoken word and like debate and cheekiness and that whole like style of like, I need to like win the argument just for the sake of winning the argument. I don't even care what I'm arguing about still very much in Bitcoin. And if you can't stomach that, then yeah, like doing core development of Bitcoin is not for you, but it's not for me either. You can still like Bitcoin is the most accessible industry in the world today, just like the rest of crypto is. In fact, I would argue that today Bitcoin is safer than crypto because Bitcoin is the only industry that just won't have to deal with regulations because it's already regulated. Yeah. And I think that's a good point, especially in the US context, you know, you yourself have obviously kind of had to navigate that as a founder, navigate that line, play that line. And when that line's not clearly defined, it's almost an impossible task. You know, again, this was one of the things that we felt made Bitcoin's moment now is kind of finally, perhaps it's the one part of the ecosystem where you have surety that you can innovate, you know, on it. And as long as you comply with, you know, various other perhaps more common sense things to do you know you can't defraud anybody anything else but like you know you have common sense you can innovate on on top of bitcoin in the us you can be based in the us your staff can be in the us and you can be comfortable that you can do that with a a degree of surety i completely agree with that in bitcoin yes in crypto still very scary like still today to start a crypto company legal is like a big part of your budget where if you start a bitcoin company you can pretty much stick to certain boundaries and know that you'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, budgeting for legal has been a big part of where we help advise startups. And the more innovative, you know, the bigger the budget. And that's a really hard thing to ask a VC for. You know, I need 20 million and 5 million of it's going to go towards lawyers who may not even be able to give me a definitive answer on like an outcome, you know. That used to be okay. Because you were like trailblazing. Now that crypto has become this kind of like, you know, political football, you know, you don't throw good money after bad. Right. So look, we're, we're kind of coming up on the hour. and want to be respectful of your time. You know, that kind of topics, perhaps the more negative part of it. Let's end on a high. Let's kind of what the bull case for Bitcoin in 24, if you believe that's the case. I feel very high on Bitcoin and crypto after doing this talk. Like this was a very positive conversation. This is a beautiful show. Like if those are the biggest problems that we have, like we're good as champagne problems. Like, like we didn't even need to talk about all the good stuff happening. We just spent the hour talk, trying to find like the little stuff that we need to work on, you know, and we gave, by the way, I'm going to send this podcast to so many people because we probably gave like five good business ideas for free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you practically wrote five RFPs for the program. So, you know, please do apply, you know, reach out to Charlie first before you implement the idea. I'm sure you'd like to contribute, invest, something else. At the very least, you know, chat to you about it. Until the problem's solved, you know, it's fair game, right? It's open game. This is the positive thing we can end on. How nice is it? That we can do holiday meals and crypto is back in favor. Yeah. We don't. (laughs) 
You're not disowned at the table. <laughs> I sat in the back of the table last year on Christmas. They, well, they all lost money at FTX. So I sat in the back, you know, it was bad. So when things aren't going well, I say I work in tech. And then when things are going well, I work in crypto. Well, look, Charlie, it's, it's been great having you on the show. As I said, you know, thanks for your contribution just generally to the space. We're really grateful for you to give some of your time to help support startups going through the program. And, you know, definitely, if you're not already, you know, Charlie's got his own podcast. You should listen to it. He's dropping alpha and ideas all the time. Many ideas that you could pick up and turn into multi-billion dollar startups, I'm sure, over the next decade. So make sure you follow that. And Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 